0: All right, now we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will." The apostle continues his exhortation and final charge to Timothy by calling him in verse 1 as his son to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because of all that he said previously regarding the gospel and the truthfulness of the gospel and the need to protect it, he's ex- exhorting and encouraging him to be strong in this grace, in the grace that's only found in Christ Jesus. It's necessary Not only to have grace, but to be strong in the grace, to grow in the grace. This is what is meant by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, 2 Peter 3, 18. It's necessary not only to have some grace, but to continue in it and make sure that we are uh, shored up and assured and strengthened in that grace. Also, he reiterates the fact it's only in Christ. Not in anyone else, only in Christ. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. It consists of doing everything in Christ, everything for Christ, everything for the glory of Christ. Verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We have here... Uh, a few generations of disciples. He says what he's heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy has, Timothy should entrust to others, others who are faithful, and that they should teach others. Here it's necessary, it's a clear indication that the gospel does not get promoted haphazardly. The gospel is not something that is erratic and, um, and nonchalant in the way that it's promoted. It has to be done intentionally with a purpose. Yes, it requires people. It requires ministers. It requires the opening of the mouth. It requires study. It requires discipleship. It requires people who are willing to listen and to be taught, which also requires humility. It requires people to be faithful, in holding forth the gospel and proclaiming that gospel and others have to listen to it and recognize they have to be discipled. They have to grow in it. It, Notice it's an entrustment. It's It's something that needs to be entrusted. People are untrustworthy. People who hold the gospel, who have access to the Bible, are untrustworthy people and it's even hard to find faithful men, people who will listen to it People who are going to listen and actually adhere to it. People who will say what they mean, mean what they say. It's hard to find people like that. Many a man, Proverbs 20, verse 6, many a man proclaims his own loyalty. Yeah. But who can find a trustworthy man? Who can find a trustworthy man? Everybody will say, yes, yes, raise their hand and do, do something and, and say something. Yeah, I believe. But there's few are actually faithful. This is the kind of uh, person that must be sought out. Faithful ministers need to find faithful people so that they can transition the gospel from one generation to another generation. It requires faithfulness. It also requires hardship. Verse 3, "'Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus.' No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. It's necessary to suffer hardship as a soldier, a good soldier, not a rebellious one, not a careless one, but a good soldier, one who's faithful in his duties. He has enlisted himself in the service of his enlister. The one who enlisted him is the one who calls the shots, is the one who says, if you become a soldier, these will be your duties. This is what you must do. You must be ready and willing to die for your nation. You must protect your nation. All of this is necessary. (coughs) And so, good soldiers must be ready and willing to suffer hardship. And so, because of that, he says in verse 4 if you're in active service if you are in active service does the one in active service entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life there are many things he could do if he were not a soldier which in and of themselves are not necessarily bad things but since we are soldiers of Christ we ought to be willing and ready to give up those things that in and of themselves the activity may not be a bad thing. It's not going to harm you spiritually. It's not going to damage your body, whatever. It's not bad in that sense. But if we are Christians, do we really want to do those things all the time? Do we want to spend one hour, three hours, five hours doing this or that activity that squanders our time? We wouldn't want to do that because we have enlisted ourselves as soldiers of Christ. So we don't entangle ourselves... ...in the affairs of everyday life. This requires commitment. It requires dedication. The next picture he portrays is in verse 5. He says, if anyone competes as an athlete... ...he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Athletes need to train. They need to be vigorous. They need to be dedicated as well. They need to also know the rules... They cannot transgress the rules, the laws of the game. What is applicable to them, they must know it, and then they must live their life according to it. They must restrict themselves, similar to the soldier who restricts himself. The athlete has to be dedicated enough to his cause of winning, just like the soldier wins by protecting his own life and the life of his own countrymen. In the same way, the athlete he is in the race because he wants to win. He wants to accomplish a right and good goal. This is the way of the Christian life too. We have to have that goal of living according to the rules. In 1 Corinthians 9:27 the apostle says, "I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after preaching to others I myself might be disqualified." He does not want to be disqualified from winning the prize he does not want to be so he buffets his body he's not talking about torturing his body he's talking about self-control he's talking about self-control as an athlete would do and even as a soldier would do they have to practice some self-control to maintain their duties and to win the prize then verse 6 the farmer the hard-working farmer he describes the farmer that way not a lazy farmer. There should be no lazy ranches and farms that exist. Those that exist are useless and no one can benefit from the land and all of the the produce of the land and from the cattle of the land. No one can benefit. But the hard-working farmer, the one who's diligent, who knows that he must work hard in order to see fruit. When he sees the fruit, he will be the first to receive his share of the crops. He will enjoy his dedicated work. And this also, note, it requires time. It requires time for the farmer to see the fruit. Some crops, they will arise quickly. Other crops take a season. Others take longer, a year or two or three, in order for you to see the fruit of that crop. Some crops, some trees, that, that's the way it is. The farmer has to be diligent. Even though he doesn't see anything, he has to keep sowing seed. He has to keep cultivating the ground. He has to keep watering the ground. He has to keep putting, laying fertilizer in the ground until he sees the fruit. And then when he sees it, he can enjoy it. That's the way of the Christian life. Verse 7. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, in this verse, we have the twofold reiteration of Scripture. Consider what I say. Consider, that is, the hearer must consider the Word of God. The Apostle's Word is the Word of God. Must consider what the Word of God is. It requires listening. It requires understanding. It requires contemplation. It requires faith to consider and then believe, embrace what is said. But also... The Lord will give you understanding in everything. If we are to grow in the grace of Christ, grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, ultimately the Lord himself has to grant to us understanding. And this is what he does. In everything that we know, he's not talking about omniscience, but everything that God intends for us to know is what he means by this everything. In everything that he will grant to us, God is the one doing it, and sometimes he does it, Little by little. Sometimes he does it by leaps and bounds. Sometimes we get great understanding, either by our own study and reading of the Bible, or with the help of somebody else, we gain understanding of the Bible. Sometimes it happens slowly, and sometimes it happens fast. Whatever the case, God grants it. He grants it by the Word of God. That means hearing and studying the Word of God, and also by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to grant us insight, illumine us, teach us so that we understand the Word of God and believe it. This is the case all the time. That's why we pray. We pray when we study the Bible. We pray when we are thinking and talking about the Bible. We pray so that the Holy Spirit can confirm the truths to us and also build us up, change us, transform us so that we grow in righteousness and everything that's godly. Now, verses 8 and 9, he summarizes the gospel. There are various summaries of the gospel in the scriptures. We have one such right here. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Always, we ought to remember Jesus Christ. He is the perfect example, the model. We ought to know the gospel in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. This is where we see God. We see God in Christ. That's why constantly we must must be mindful of Christ, never be ashamed of Christ, always mention Christ. Christ is everything. Also, by implication, whenever we hear people who do not mention Christ, who do not mention the word of Christ, who don't preach Christ, who don't teach Christ, avoid them, run away, because they are false teachers. If they don't want you to know Christ, if they're promoting themselves instead of Christ, then there's a problem. If they're promoting their own ideas, their own articulation of, of spiritual, religious, and theological, philosophical concepts, if they're promoting their own and not driving you and making you seek the Bible, then avoid them because they're not causing you to remember Jesus Christ. They can't because they're not driving you to the word of Christ which teaches that he was risen from the dead. In that one phrase, he's saying, Jesus came to die on the cross, to be buried, and then to rise from the dead on the third day. That's the gospel. That's a brief explanation of the gospel. Christ risen from the dead. Sometimes the scriptures will say it in other, in other ways. Uh, For I am not ashamed uh, of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are various ways the apostle summarizes it. Here he does so. This is the gospel, belief in Christ's death and resurrection. And also his identity, descendant of David. Jesus Christ, Christ implies that he has divinity And here, descendant of David implies he has humanity without sin. Perfect humanity, no sin. We uh, must not only know what Jesus did, but who it was that did what he did for our salvation. We must know his identity and his ministry. That's the gospel. When he says my gospel, according to my gospel, he's not meaning that he invented the gospel. He's not meaning... That he has a gospel that's for him or for a few people, but not for everyone to believe. He's not meaning it like that. He's meaning my gospel in that I have been commissioned with this gospel. The one that's coming out of my mouth, the one that I'm writing, that's the gospel I'm talking about. He's identifying the human source. That's why he says my gospel. That's what he means, my gospel. Verse 9. This is how much he believes it. Verse 9. For which, this gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. He believes this gospel so much that he's willing to be persecuted, to suffer hardship even to be thrown into prison. That's the kind of faith and dedication he has. The false teachers of the world What do they want? They want comfortable, uh, air-conditioned offices. The false teachers of the world want their huge houses. The false teachers of the world want their airplanes. They want two or three or four houses. They buy $500 and $1,000 suits. This is what false teachers do. They have all kinds of luxury. This is the way they live. They're not generous with it. In fact, they take the widow's mite. They take the widow's might and enrich themselves with it. But not Paul. Not a true teacher. A true teacher suffers hardship, even to imprisonment. Not for criminality. He says here, as a criminal. He's not really a criminal, but he's suffering as a criminal. He's suffering because he's preaching the kingdom of Christ. That's why. He's suffering because he's living righteously. He's not suffering because of sin. He's suffering because he's being faithful to God. That's the way it should be for all of us. But when we see the people of God afflicted, imprisoned, mistreated, unjust treatment of them, like Paul, we ought not to be discouraged because he says, But the Word of God is not imprisoned. You cannot imprison God, and you cannot imprison the Word of God. The Word of God will spread, it will keep spreading. God will raise up somebody else. Instead of Paul preaching, he'll raise up somebody else. Even Jesus only preached for three and a half years. He didn't preach for four years or ten years or a hundred years or a thousand years. He's not on the earth eternally because God will raise up somebody else. The Word of God will not be in prison. And even while in the prison, he will spread the Word there because there will be prisoners, at least one of them, eventually released, and then go preach the gospel outside of prison. The Word of God cannot be imprisoned. That's why we must preach it. It is the means of salvation, our only means of salvation. Verse 10, he also looks at the goal, the redemptive goal in the life of others. Verse 10, for this reason I endure all things. For this reason I endure all things. What is the reason he endures all things? Why does he suffer hardship? He says, for the sake of those who are chosen. For the sake of those who are chosen. For the elect he suffers. He suffers so that the elect can be saved. He says, that they also, expressing a purpose, that or so that in order that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. The elect also need to hear the gospel to be saved in Christ and have this eternal glory. He's waiting, waiting for fruit to be born. He says, "I, I watered, uh, Apollos watered. Uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth." 1 Corinthians three six, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. This is what he has in front of him. He puts this before him, holds it forth so that when he sees this happen, he can take joy in it. Like he said in chapter 1, that he can be filled with joy. Now, in poetic fashion, verses 11 to 13, he tells us of this trustworthy statement. He calls it trustworthy so that we believe it. We have full conviction. He doesn't tell us things that he doesn't want us to believe, or that we can believe half-heartedly, or believe in terms of preference. It's not as though we're going to an ice cream shop and choosing a flavor of ice cream according to our preference, or we're going to the buffet line and choosing whatever foods on the table that we want. That's not what it is. It's a trustworthy statement for all of us to believe. And what is it? For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Like Romans 6 says, when we believe in the gospel, we have died with Christ. We have identified with his death. We believe in his death. We shall also live with him. Now, spiritually, we are alive. But just as Christ rose from the dead physically, we shall live physically. Our spiritual rebirth occurs now. Then our physical rebirth from the dead, the day of resurrection, will show forth that we will rise with Him and we will be just like Him. Jesus said, John 14, 19, Because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. And also uh, John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall not die. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is what he's saying here. We believe he died and we know he, he rose, we believe he rose, the same for us. Spiritually first, physically second. Therefore, there's no second death for us. Verse 12. If we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. If we endure. Enduring until the end. He who endures until the end shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. If we endure until the end, we shall be saved. The characteristic of a true believer is that he endures until the end. And when we endure until the end, we will reign with him. We'll reign with him. We will be priests of God and of Christ Jesus, and we will reign upon the earth. Revelation 5.10. We will reign with Christ on the earth forever. We'll be kings and royal priests, though we don't deserve it. He'll make us that. But also, verse 12, if we deny him... He also will deny us. Cowards, those who will not confess Christ before men, are actually deniers. And those who practice this kind of denial of Christ will not go to heaven, will not be saved, because Jesus himself will say that they do not belong to him. He will deny them before the Father. Jesus explained that he would do so. He says in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We cannot be Christ deniers and say we are Christians, cannot be so. Many people claim to know Christ, but the moment you ask them about Christ and the things of God, they deny it. They reject it. But Christ will reject them. But verse 13, it's not as though we have to have perfect fidelity to Christ. Yes, we strive for it. Christ told us to strive for it. Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. We are to strive for it, but many times... We lack faith. Verse 13. If we are faithless, meaning not perfectly faithful. He's not saying faithless, meaning we are devoid completely of faith. He's talking about imperfect faith. If we have imperfect faith, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we have imperfect faith, Christ will remain faithful toward us. He'll save us from our sins because He's promised to save us from our sins and He cannot deny Himself. He will not renege on His promise. What He says will take place because he believes, Because we believe in Him because He loves us and He has delivered us out of darkness and into light. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment or condemnation like Romans 8.1. Does not come into condemnation, but has passed out of death into life. Also, John chapter 10. John chapter 10 but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice uh, and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John 10, 26 to 30. Jesus said that if we are his sheep, we know him, we know, uh, he knows us. We know His voice. We follow Him. He gives us eternal life. And they shall never perish. His power, His powerful hand, and the Father's powerful hand are in control so that we will never escape their grasp. We will be saved until the very end, until the uttermost. Because God is faithful. Now, Now he turns his attention to being faithful and not following false teachers. Fourteen. Remind them of these things. Remind the people of God. It's not only for Timothy, the pastor and elder of the church, it's also for the people of God to adhere, to hold fast to these truths. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them. Solemnly charge them. This is serious business. When we talk about the truths of the gospel, we cannot negotiate, we cannot be pretenders, we cannot uh, mitigate the truthfulness of the gospel because we, it is a solemn charge. It's truth. It's eternal life. These are matters of life and death. In the presence of God, God is witness to everything we think and say and do. God is witness. Therefore, we have to be very, very careful not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Do not wrangle about words. There are false teachers who use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning, and they use common words with an uncommon meaning. When they do that, they are wrangling about words. We need to understand the biblical meaning of words. We need to understand the common meaning of words and not let people dupe us and snooker us into thinking that what they're saying is biblical and true. Don't wrangle about words. In fact, expose them for wrangling words. Expose them for calling something knowledge when it's falsely knowledge. They are the ones who need to be confronted for wrangling. That was 1 Timothy 6, 20. The opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Avoid this kind of worldly and empty chatter. Don't succumb to their false terminology. Don't succumb to it. They love to wrangle. They also, when you confront them, they, what they love to do is to say, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Okay, sir, then what do you mean? And then he explains, and then he mumbles and jumbles up everything and, and throws confusion into it because he's trying to evade your question. You ask for a definition of terms and he won't give it to you. This is what they do. They wrangle about words. And all of this is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. There is no benefit. There is no spiritual benefit. On the other hand, what should we do? What should the man of God do? Verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. On the other hand, our diligence should be To the word of God, which is the word of truth. The false teachers promote words of falsehood. We have words of truth. We ought not to be ashamed of what's in the Bible. This is what often happens. False teachers read something in the Bible, claiming to be Christians, and then they're ashamed of something that the Bible teaches. They're ashamed of what it says about God. They're ashamed of what it says about man. They're ashamed ashamed of what it says about the only means of salvation. They are ashamed of the righteousness and judgment of God. They're ashamed of these things. So what do they do? They mitigate it when they preach and teach it. That's what they do. They avoid those subjects. They never talk about them. They say, "I, I don't preach on that part of the Bible. And if you examine people like this, false teachers, they will not handle the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. They will cherry pick what parts of the Bible they want to preach. Even if they're preaching a verse and half of the verse is suitable to them and the other half is unsuitable to them, they'll only preach half of the verse. But not the man of God, the workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the Word of Truth, no, We preach it all. We talk about it all. Everything has its place. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Verse 16. In contrast, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. This is the same as what he said in in verse 14, or in 1st Timothy chapter 6 verse 20 chapter 6 verse 20 where he says O Timothy guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith grace be with you avoid all of this these people who love to use these words in a false way it's worldly and empty chatter That's what he's calling it. And it leads to further ungodliness. In fact, the false teachers promote ungodliness. They promote immorality. They promote all kinds of unethical behavior, both for themselves and for other people. They're the ones who say peace and safety when there is no peace and safety. They're the ones that say that they will preach whatever you want to hear. That has happened. It has happened. Pastors have told their search committees, I'll preach what you want me to preach. They have said things like that. This is what happens. And there are people who actually want that to to happen so that they can practice and do whatever they want to do. In fact, they will tell and insist messengers of the gospel to be that way. Isaiah 30, verse 9. Isaiah 30, verse 9. Isaiah says, by the word of the Lord, and this... Is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, the true seers, the seers of God, You must not see visions, and to the prophets, You must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This is what people say. And this is the kind of worldly and empty chatter that leads to further ungodliness. And 17, it doesn't stay with them. They accuse us of trying to persuade people. They accuse us of evangelism in wrong ways. They accuse us of defending the gospel, of apologetics. They accuse us of trying to be right and stay right and persuade others that we're right. But well, look at verse 17. What do the false teachers do? Their talk, their falsehood will spread like gangrene. It's not enough for them to keep their falsehood to themselves. They want to spread it. They want to evangelize with their falsehood. They want to defend their falsehood. When anybody confronts them about their falsehood, they defend themselves. They say, you have no business confronting me. That's unloving. That's unchristian. That's ungracious. Show me some grace. That's what they say. By the way, show me some grace or show me grace is not a biblical phrase. And it's not even a biblical concept. But they use it. Their talk spreads like gangrene like this deadly disease that spreads throughout the whole body, gangrene. That's the way their falsehood spreads. They are great evangelists and apologists for their own falsehoods. Again, in verse 17, as the apostle does two times, or two names in every chapter of 2 Timothy, he mentions two false teachers by name, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hymenaeus and Philetus two false teachers, and he has them in mind, probably the leaders of this doctrine, the doctrine of verse 18, men who have gone astray from the truth, they're not promoting the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. These two men were saying that the resurrection has already taken place. If it's already taken place, it must have been an invisible resurrection. And if it were were an invisible resurrection, they were probably also saying, the resurrection has already taken place, and you missed it. They missed it too. They missed it too. (laughs) They missed it too. Therefore, the resurrection, what they were saying is, the resurrection that Paul and Jesus and others preached was not a, a correct resurrection. We are preaching the correct resurrection, and it's an invisible resurrection. Jesus and Paul's resurrection is a physical resurrection, and that can't be true. So they contradict Paul and Jesus and Isaiah and Moses and Daniel and everybody else who preached resurrection. And when they do that, they upset the faith of some. They cause anxiety, distress, division, contention, and the upsetting of the faith. They turn people away from the gospel. There are people who say that on one or two or three issues we ought to hold forth and stand firm. We cannot negotiate. But there are many other doctrines that are negotiable. However, notice here, there are some people who don't even put resurrection in the non-negotiable category. But here, the Apostle Paul puts resurrection in the non-negotiable category, as he does some, many other things in the non-negotiable category. We're not supposed to take a minimalistic view of true doctrine, and if we reject that true doctrine, then we go to hell, only if we reject this one doctrine or this two, these two or three doctrines. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. Amen. The Bible teaches whatever is in the Bible, whatever is true, whatever we should believe, we should believe. And if we detract from it, if we contradict it, we controvert it, then God will deny us. As he said in verse 12, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Whoever goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 2nd John 2nd John he said whoever goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God whoever abides in the teaching he has both the father and the son 2nd John 9 verse 19 nevertheless 2 Timothy 2:19 nevertheless the firm foundation of God stands having this seal The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. The firm foundation of God has a seal on it, and this seal is twofold. The Lord knows those who are His. We might become alarmed. How can I know? Does God know? In fact, does God know? And then, secondly, how can I know who's in the faith? Does God know is answered in the first expression. The Lord knows those who are His. God knows. No worry. Don't worry about it. God knows who the true believers are. And He will save those true believers. God has not lost control of this wicked world. He knows. But also the other truth is meant to help us. To help us for ourselves and to identify others. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Here, this is for our solace, for us to know that if we know the Lord and we're not practicing wickedness, we, we do, do truly belong to Him. And it also helps us when we're talking about other people. If other people are promoting wickedness and saying, I can be a wicked Christian. Now, nobody says that. But they will say, I can be a homosexual Christian I can be a fornicating Christian I can be an a, adulterous Christian they do say that I can be uh, a, a scoundrel and a Christian I can be a swindler and a Christian they do say that but that's not true let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness it helps us to identify ourselves and identify other people Are we in the faith or not in the faith? We have several places in Scripture for further study. Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6 that have passages that list the difference between a believer and an unbeliever by fruit, by manifestation. The deeds of the flesh, for example, Galatians 5, contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. In verse 19. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now he illustrates this necessity of abstention from wickedness. Verse 20. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Large houses have precious vessels and worthless or dispensable vessels, common vessels. Wood and earthenware are the common ones that are for dishonorable uses. We might say today somebody might have a very expensive bag, perhaps a a travel bag, computer bag, or something that's very expensive, but then they also have uh, bags they use for the trash. Plastic bags that are easily Dispensable. That's the way it is with people. That's the way it is with people. Those who are the golden vessels are those who don't participate in dirty and filthy practices. That's what his point is. If you are a golden vessel, you will not be used, you will not use your body, you will not use your mind, you will not use your mouth for wickedness, for dirty and filthy things, for trash. You won't use it for trash. That's what the earthenware vessel is used for. It's used for trash. Sometimes, and in, 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 even today in some cultures, the earthen vessel, the clay vessels, are used for one purpose, a temporary purpose that might even last for five minutes, and then it's thrown onto the trash heap. That's the way it is, but not the golden vessels. The golden vessels are not used for temporary and dirty purposes and then put into some trash heap that's even more filthy than the mouth. He's saying the believer is like a golden vessel. And when he is that way, he will be useful for honor, he'll be sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That's the kind of vessel God wants, a vessel that's vessel for honor, sanctification, useful, and pre- prepared for every good work. Now, verse 21 says, if a man cleanses himself from these things. When it says that he cleanses himself from these things, it does not imply that he cleanses himself by himself. Right. That's not what the scripture means. When this noun, this pronoun, which is a reflexive pronoun, himself is used. Sometimes it means by himself or himself alone. And at other times it means for himself, to benefit himself. And that's the sense here. If a man cleanses himself, that is for his benefit, so that he's not participating in dirty and filthy sins, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That's the sense in which he means it. He's saying that when a man is cleansed, clean, because that cleansing has taken place to benefit himself, then he shows forth that he's a golden vessel. That's that's all he means. He's not saying by himself. Why do we know he's not saying by himself? Because in chapter two, verse ten, he believes in election. Verse 10 says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. He's working for the chosen people. He's not working for every person in the world. He's working so that the chosen people of the world will be saved. The ones that God wants to save will be saved because they are chosen of God. He believes in predestination or election, choice, gracious choice of God. He believes in that from verse 10. He also believes that if there's going to be a cleansing of the person, it has to come from God because of what he says in verses 25 and 26. He says about the one who is a quarrelsome man. It might be that the quarrelsome man repents, but if he does repent and cleanse himself of his wickedness, how does that come about? Verse 25 says, If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. There we have it. That repentance in verse 25 is a gift to some people. If perhaps God may grant them the gift of repentance to stop being a quarrelsome man and be somebody who has lost his senses who's insane by practicing evil, and no longer enslaved by the devil, that's a gift of God. Paul believes in election. He also believes that repentance is a gift of God. That's why verse 21 does not mean if a man cleanses himself by himself. That's not the meaning of it. Let's continue. Verse 22. Verse 22, summarizing what he has just said in the preceding verses, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee from youthful lusts. He doesn't say it's okay to be near it, to go to the boundary line of it. He doesn't even say that you can go uh, into it, let alone into it. Avoid it, run away from it altogether. This reminds us of Joseph. In the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife was an adulteress. She was an adulteress and sought, adulteress at heart at least, and sought to do so with Joseph. But what did Joseph do? When she seized his garment, he fled. He fled. Literally, he fled. He ran out of the house. That's the kind of thing we need to do with youthful lusts. Whatever the lusts are. Whether they are sexual lusts, whether they are indulgences of uh, elements and food and drink, whatever the lusts are, even if they are lusts of the eyes and addictions we have to things on the computer, whether it's computer games or whatever, hobbies and habits we have, whatever these lusts are that make us insane people to lose our senses, as he says in verse 26, run away from them. Run away from them. They are particularly a problem for youth. We all have them and we will have them until we breathe our last breath. But youth particularly have them and they must flee from them. Avoid them. They must gird their minds for action. First Peter 1 Peter 1:13 to 17. Gird your minds for action. They must take control of the mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's on the rejection side. That's on the refutation side. We have to flee from the lust. But on the proactive side, on the good side, what should we do? Pursue righteousness? Righteousness. Find in Scripture that which is righteous, that which conforms to the law of God. Righteousness and wickedness are legal terms that have to do with whether one is conforming his life to the law of God. Are we righteous, conforming our, our minds and our lives according to the word of God? Practicing faith. Do we believe in what the word of God says? Are we bolstering our faith? Are we pursuing things that encourage our faith in the scriptures? Or are we listening to people who keep uh, shouting at us and they keep clamoring, for our attention so that we believe them instead of the Bible it should be the Bible faith in the word of Christ love. love we ought to pursue love of God and love of neighbor or in the church context love of the brotherhood love of God love of neighbor and in the church love of the brethren that's what we ought to pursue love 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 Biblical love, the way the Bible describes it, not not worldly love, the way the world and the common culture describes it. Love according to scripture. And peace. Peace between us and God. It's not good to do some sin and to have this contention and strife and anxiety within ourselves when we know we have transgressed the law of God. Pursue peace with God. Confess our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. That's what we should do between us and God, but also between us and others. As far as it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. As far as it is possible, as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Pursue peace. Be peacemakers. Blessed are ...are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But we can't do this alone. Amen. We can't do it alone. With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Find those who are faithful. Find those who are seeking to do things sincerely and righteously for, for God. Find those kinds of people who have a pure heart. Who are unpretentious people. Without guile. Without deceit. Who are not doing these things for themselves... For not, for, not for their self-promotion, but they want to do these things because they really want to please God. They're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the way it should be done. With others. Not alone. Not in isolation. But with the people of God. We have to do it together. Right. Together. 23. Twenty-three. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. There are foolish and ignorant speculations. That is, things that the Bible does not say. The Bible does not say a lot about many things. There's no need to speculate on those things. There's no need also to focus our minds on speculations because they are unhelpful to us knowing that they produce quarrels. You see, many people like to speculate and they like to debate and, and harangue each other about things that are useless. They, they don't really matter. When they should actually be focusing their attention on what the Bible does say. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So what's revealed should be our focus. The writing of books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. So read, study, memorize, discuss the Word of God because the other things produce quarrels. 24. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. We belong to God. We are his bondservant, or we are his slave. This translation says bondservant because we are fully dedicated, like Exodus 21, we love our master. We love our master, and we want to do anything and everything that's pleasing to him. We are the Lord's bondservant. We are his slave, and we cannot be, and should not be, quarrelsome. Quarrelsome is someone who's involved with speculations. But we ought to be characterized by kindness to all, Treat them as you want to be treated. Able to teach. The Lord's bondservant must be able to teach the word of God. That assumes that he knows it, he believes it, and he is able to communicate those truths. Patient when wronged. Patience should be exercised. Not knee-jerk reactions to everything. 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Correct those who are in opposition with gentleness. Now, this gentleness needs to be met when there is humility and gentleness with those who detract. Many detractors are often not belligerent in their detractions. They, they might detract, but they might do it politely and kindly and gently. So when they do so, be gentle to them. That's the point. Now, he's not addressing at this point meeting force with force. Because when Jesus met the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23, when he met them, and he knew that they were obstinate, they had no desire to listen, they had no desire to believe, but they were there in their insidious fashion misleading the people. They won't enter the kingdom of heaven, and they prevent others from entering the kingdom of heaven. When he met them, he called them wolves, he called them whitewashed tombs, He he says, who warned you to flee from the sentence of hell? Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Go on, continue. Practice your sin and go to hell for it. So in this case, however, 25, he's not talking about those kinds of people. He's talking about people who are willing to listen even though they may disagree, even though they may have a habit of bringing up speculations. Just be patient with them and deal with them kindly and gently. Because, verse 25, if perhaps... God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. As we said before, it says God may grant repentance. Perhaps God may grant repentance. If perhaps God may grant repentance. If repentance takes place in anybody, as we said in verses 19 to 21, if it's going to take place in anybody, it will take place because God gives it, grants it as a gift. The Scriptures believe, the Scriptures teach that both faith and repentance are gifts of God. Faith is a gift of God according to Philippians 1.29, Ephesians 2.8-10. Faith is a gift. Here he says repentance is a gift. 2 Timothy 2.25, Acts 5.31, Acts 11.18. 11, 11.18, 11, for example. So then, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life we pray for this. That's why we're patient, that's why we're kind, that's why we're gentle, because we hope that people repent by the grace of God. 26, how important is this or how enslaved were they? How serious of a problem do we have when people are practicing speculations, practicing godlessness, they're pursuing youthful lusts? How important is this? What's wrong? 26 says and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will the people who detract from the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the word of truth, they are not living according to their senses they're insane people they are unsober people they're like intoxicated drunkards they don't know what reality is they have to come to their senses. Anyone who practices sin is one who is insane. Anyone who does sin, at least even momentarily, he's being irrational, he's being illogical and insane. According to the Bible, those who have sanity, those who have sobriety, those who have their senses are those who practice wisdom, practice righteousness, do the will of God, not the will of the devil. The devil is the one who promotes insanity. Because people who are sons of the devil are ensnared by him and captive by him to do the devil's will. That's the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 1-3. Or even Jesus said in John eight forty four, You are of your father the devil and you do the desires of your father. He was a a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie, and he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. People who believe lies are insane, because it's not reality. It's not reality. That's why all these matters are so solemn. They're so important. We cannot mitigate, negotiate any of these biblical truths. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.